Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about world affairs and the people who shape it. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch, and in this show we discuss topical global issues and have in-depth conversations with personalities in foreign policy. Global Dispatches is presented in partnership with Humanity in Action, an international educational organization, and I am a Humanity in Action senior fellow. My guest today, Eric Schwartz, served as the top refugee policy official in the Obama administration. He was the Assistant Secretary of State for Population, Refugees, and Migration between 2009 and 2011. After a stint in academia, he was recently appointed the President of Refugees International, an advocacy organization in Washington, D.C. And we kick off this conversation discussing U.S. refugee policy in the wake of President Trump's attempts to sharply curb the number of refugees allowed into the United States. Eric has had a fascinating career, working in the NGO sector to help establish Human Rights Watch's Asia branch, and also for both the United States government, including in Bill Clinton's National Security Council, and for the United Nations under the High Commissioner for Human Rights, and also under the Special Envoy for Tsunami Recovery to help countries affected by that massive 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami, and that Special Envoy, by the way, was Bill Clinton. We also do discuss at length Eric's relationship with Sergio Vieira de Mello. And for some background here, he was a well-known figure around the United Nations who served as the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights before working for a stint as the top UN official in Iraq immediately following the U.S. invasion and occupation of Iraq. DeMello was killed in a bombing of the UN headquarters in Baghdad in 2003, along with 21 others. And Eric discusses how that event impacted him both personally and professionally. I think you will learn a lot from this conversation. I know I did. Uh, One quick note before we start. So for the last few episodes, you may have noticed that uh, I've been plugging this upcoming Skype conference call for people who have questions about careers in international affairs. I know uh, many, not all of you, but, but, but a good number of you who listen to this show are younger professionals in foreign policy and might have questions about careers, career paths, about master's degree, about schools. Uh, I have two great people lined up to answer your questions and more. If you want more information about this conference call, send me an email. Use the contact button at globaldispatchespodcast.com to send me a note, and I will send you more information about this upcoming event. I don't have a firm date and time to announce to you yet, but it will happen sometime in late July. So send me an email on that. I'm happy to do this for you guys. Thank you so much for listening. Now, here is my conversation with Eric Schwartz. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. I think, you know, our role is to shine a light, to talk about 
publicize uh, compelling humanitarian issues at a time in which there is so much competition for news and so much compassion fatigue and so much misrepresentation about the nature of um, a, a refugee, the refugee experience, I think we have a, a, a really a solemn uh, obligation. And so the issues that we're really concerned about are the issues where um, people are suffering the most and where people are suffering the most in circumstances that are under or unreported. So, so an organization like ours focuses on places like uh, Burma, where you have hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Rohingya refugees uh, who have been forced out of their uh, country of origin. And um, the world doesn't really focus its attention or concern on the plight of these terrible people. And 20, 30, 40 years from now, we don't want to be in a position where we say, oh, you know, where was the world? Uh, where was the world's attention when these people were suffering uh, so uh, dramatically? Those are the kinds of places that we focus our attention on. And, um, and I should say, as a consumer of your advocacy work and, and of your reports, I, I really do find Refugees International does very useful. It really helps keep me informed as I cover these issues. So hopefully you guys are going to keep on, keep on doing that with you as president now. Well, I hope so. I mean, that's the plan. And I think our my major objective is, you know, as great as the work of Refugees International has been, um, I think it is uh, our uh, responsibility uh, to be even much more uh, in the fight. I think that uh, I want to see the pace of our reporting increase. I want to see our engagement in policy discussions to be more uh, systematic, uh, and um, and I and and I don't want there to be important uh, humanitarian issues that are being debated where this organization, Refugees International, uh, is not in the middle of those discussions and debates. So, so where are you right now on this question of of a refugee ban on the United States? So we're speaking. Uh, on a day that the refugee ban was supposed to kick in, uh, it's unclear how the courts will play this out in, in, in the end, but it's clear that the intent of this administration is to uh, ban all refugees from everywhere in the world for the next 120 days. So uh, how do you engage in that debate? Well, let me, um, let me, let me start by answering, you know, addressing the simple question of why have a U.S. refugee resettlement program. Why, why bother resettling 50, 60, 70, uh, 100, 110,000 refugees a year when um, there are more than 65 million people on the move, uh, displaced by conflict around the world, um, while un why under the best of circumstances, only a tiny fraction of the world's refugees and displaced persons will be resettled. So why do it? Why does the United States do it? And, and I should say, for, for people who are unfamiliar, you uh, ran this program during several years of the Obama administration. <laughs> I, so. I, was, I was the Assistant Secretary of State for Population, Refugees, and Migration, and the State Department has had the lead in that program. Um, it's had the lead in that program, and it's uh, that program is a function of the 1980 Refugee Act, and that act 
uh, recognized a responsibility of the United States government, a global responsibility to play a role in resettlement. Now, resettlement is only one of three options for the world's refugees. Hopefully, uh, refugees can return home when the countries, when the when the circumstances that motivated their flight are no more, when the conflict ends, when persecution ends. But that doesn't often happen. Uh, alternatively, refugees. Uh, can get permanent homes in the places to which they fled, the countries of of of, of first asylum or safe haven. Refu- third country resettlement, in which the refugees go from those countries of safe haven to a third country, uh, like the United States, is really a solution for a very small minority of refugees. However, however, it is a critical humanitarian uh, um, uh, obligation and necessity for a small number of the most vulnerable refugees, and more, and as importantly, as importantly, how in heaven's name can we be asking the government of Jordan uh, to provide safe haven to hundreds of thousands of Syrian refugees? How can we, in heaven's name, uh, ask uh, uh, the government of Turkey to have policies of tolerance and inclusion for? Uh, uh, three million uh, Syrian refugees. How can we ask the same of the government of Lebanon uh, when when we're not uh, prepared to even consider resettlement of a fraction of the numbers that we're expecting others uh, to uh, to provide safe haven for? So it's a critical tool of American foreign policy. So have you heard stories of of refugees who are poised to come to the United States, but will probably be turned away? I mean, I'm speaking to you from Denver, and I just spoke to the local International Rescue Committee uh, rep here who told me the story of an Iraqi interpreter who worked for a U.S. military contractor who is supposed to arrive in late July, but now most likely will not arrive. He and his family of of five were supposed to meet their cousin, but cousin didn't count under the Supreme under the uh, administration's interpretation of the Supreme Court ruling as a close enough family member. So now, in all likelihood, they'll they'll be excluded. Are, are like are you hearing yes, those kinds yeah, of I mean, stories? All you have to do is all you have to do is uh, read um, uh, the press from around the country uh, every morning, and you you read about these uh, stories. You can also. Uh, hear about these stories from the major national resettlement agencies, all of which have affiliates throughout the United States. And and we're hearing stories about people who have been frustrated in a variety of ways because the refugee resettlement process takes, on average, it's taken, and the, the numbers change, but on average, but uh, probably about 18 months from start to finish, right? So any uh, any decision to to ban, to halt this process, immediately impacts people who are at some stages, thousands upon thousands of people who are in some stages of the refugee resettlement process. And what does that mean? Well, think about about yourself. When you move from one one part of the country to the other, um, you know, you you have to make arrangements. These are people who are planning to move, you know, to the United States. So they're making all kinds of life arrangements in terms of um, of their homes, their their temporary homes, their belongings, all kinds of things. And this this level of uncertainty, you know, has had profound impacts on so many different people. Now, so let me get to, if I may, uh, let me get to the ban. Let me get to this executive order. The problem with this executive order, the problem with this executive order is that, you know, I, I, I took this job 
at the at the at Refugees International. After six years as the dean of the Humphrey School of Public Affairs at the University of Minnesota. So if there's a religion, if there's a religion at a school of public policy, the religion is that, you know, that evidence should inform policymaking, right? That, that you use um, a quantitative and qualitative analysis to make judgments about the best kind of policy to be pursuing, right? And, and so... So the fact that this executive order is based on evidence-free analysis um, should be a source of enormous concern to all Americans. Because when you don't make policy based on sound analysis, people suffer um, and our futures suffer. Um, And there's just no basis for the policy measures that this administration has taken with respect to Well, I mean, there's like a political basis for it. There there could be, you know, know, the people in the White House could be making the calculation that this is a kind of demonstrative, you know, nationalist move that that will kind of fire up their base, that that delivers on some campaign promises. So, I mean, there's – that seems to be driving this. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think you've you've made a very good point. I stand corrected. Uh, there is a there's a logic. You you've argued that there's a logical basis for this um, uh, for this uh, uh, these policies. I mean, it's mean and cruel and, and, awful, and that logic but, but, is that yeah. logic and that logic is grounded in politics. That's right. But 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 when you're making public policy, um, you at least um, you know are suppo- you you are you we we all give lip lip service to the basic notion. That policymaking should be based on um, uh, on evidence about outcomes, and whatever you think the real political basis for this decision may or may not be, the fact is that the administration, the Trump administration, has justified its action based on purported, and I say purported, national security threats, and that's just dead wrong. Um, um, there's there is. You know, you, you can't find in the last decade or more a case of a refugee who has been resettled in the United States of America, who, as a result of an act of terror, is responsible for the death of an American. There is no such case. And so to argue that somehow, somehow uh, um, the procedures that were in place over the last many years are inadequate, based on nothing but an assertion. Um, is very, very troubling because it impacts the lives and the well-being of of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people um, who uh, have who have sought resettlement in the United States. So, so what uh, you know, it, it, it's interesting. I've I've counted on Refugees International uh, over the years. I think since like Ken Bacon was was the president mm-hmm. way back yeah. when it was when I it was when it first came on my radar when I was a reporter in, in D.C. covering these issues was was for what you said earlier, like the analysis of situations in places like the DRC or uh, Myanmar, not really so much like an analysis of of how um, U.S. politics might be informing like the refugee discussion and and what steps needed to be taken here in the United States to 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 sort of ameliorate those kinds of situations. Right, that's a great point, and um, and and it is true. That the 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 expertise of our program staff, our advocates, really go to um, to um, uh, situations and circumstances overseas. 
Um, and that is the that is a major the major strength of Refugees International. Um, uh, it also happens to be the case that um, that number one, our refugee resettlement program, uh, you know, is uh, an expression of an international humanitarian commitment, and number two. Um, it is incumbent upon the United States to practice at home what we preach abroad. Uh, otherwise, our diplomacy uh, is hypocritical and we are uh, ineffective. And I guess the final point is that um, the new president of Refugees International you know, happened to run the U.S. resettlement program. So for all those reasons, we can't ignore refugee resettlement. But our focus, much of the focus of this organization is on uh, situations around the world. And even there, there is an important uh, U.S. policy dimension. Uh, I mean, the United States last year was probably responsible for close to a quarter uh, of the world funding for international humanitarian assistance. And that's probably about right, because generally speaking, that's roughly our share of world gross uh, domestic product. So we ought to be contributing at that level. Um, and that, that those kinds of contributions have had enormous benefits for people around the world. And unfortunately, the current administration uh, is proposing uh, massive, massive and unprecedented cuts yeah. in those programs. So it's zeroing policy. out like UNICEF funding and World yes. program yes. funding. It's, it's, it's just like, UNICEF uh, comes. <laughs> yes. yes. UNICEF comes out at zero. Yes. It in does. the White it's, House budget, budget proposal. It won't get passed. I mean, it's not what will end up being passed through Congress, but it's, it's still a pretty profound statement of where their priorities are. I, I think, uh, you know, I think that's, that's right. And, uh, and I welcome the statement by members of the Senate that, that this budget is dead on arrival. Um, I also welcome, uh, on some level, I think I welcome Ambassador uh, Nikki Haley's uh, comments uh, when she testified on Capitol Hill, where she basically said she was here to listen, and uh, she essentially said this budget proposal is a work in progress. I mean, it's an interesting perspective uh, uh, from an administration official who has essentially come up there to defend the administration's budget, but it's not an unwelcome perspective. No, no, no. I watched that. I was, I watched that whole hearing and it was, I was, I was floored too. She's like, I'm not here to defend the, and I'm here to be a liaison between you and the white house. That's exactly exactly what she said. Yeah. So, you know, and I, and I, and as I said, when I was asked about this, I, I, I welcome that, but I also think the proof is in the pudding and ultimately you know, Ambassador Haley is going to, you know, I think we want her to, to produce on these issues as well. And um, and it's really important because, you know, our, our focus is in places, much of our focus at Refugees International is in places like, um, uh, you know, Uganda, which is now hosting uh, nearly one million South Sudanese refugees and the and the financial requirements are significant and substantial. Um, our focus is, you know, places like Bangladesh, which because of the horrible policies of the government of Burma, you know, Bangladesh is hosting anywhere between 200 and 500,000 um, Rohingya refugees. And the funding requirements are significant. Now, in the grand scheme of things, it's important that your listeners understand that in the grand scheme of things, the requirements for international humanitarian response are not that great. And countries should be able to afford those. I mean, it, the truth of the matter is that the world provided about $28 billion in international humanitarian assistance, which they did uh, in 2016. 
That seems like a lot of money, but relative to world gross domestic product, it is infinitesimal. Yeah. So spread out over many countries. And, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I, I'd love to switch gears and learn more about you and your background. Uh, I know you just took the helm at Refugees International, but you've been on my radar uh, for a long time, having operated in, in, in this space. But let's turn back the clock a, a little bit. Where, where are you from? Where were, where were you born? I grew up in uh, on Long Island. Uh, in, in I could uh, tell that from your voice. Uh, <laughs> well, some people guess Boston, but but um, but but you know this is a very relaxing interview, and when you get more relaxed, uh, your um, your accent little, comes yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Nassau uh, County comes out. Exactly <laughs> right. So I grew up in, um, South, in the town of Oyster Bay. Yeah. Uh, and and what did your what did your parents do? My my dad was a um, uh, started uh, out as an actor in a theater professor, but then ultimately um, uh, was a, a commercial film producer, and my mom was a, a nursery school teacher. What, and any any roles we would be familiar with? No, probably not. Um, um, and um, and uh, but I think more, of more significance to me, you know, I, my my background is not unusual uh, for someone who uh, a Jewish kid who grew up on Long Island. My grandfather. Uh, you know, fled uh, uh, Romania uh, at the turn of the century, and um, and uh, I. Uh, so did uh, mine. Yeah, I'm, I, it doesn't yeah. surprise me one bit. Well, and, not quite the turn of the century. I'm I'm a bit younger than you. In the twenties, he, yeah, he left. Yeah, you know, and I grew up with uh, hearing from him about stories of of the the, the you know the, the really difficult circumstances that that he encountered as a kid, and um, and We're I don't Romania. Know, maybe maybe we're related. <laughs> we might be, uh, um, you know, and um, and uh, you know, you. I don't know. I, I grew up in a household where there was, I think, a real appreciation of the fact that um, there, but for the grace of God, go I. That that what you have, uh, you know, uh, you, you know, you, you you shouldn't go through life um, if you were born on third base, uh, thinking that you hit a triple. Um, uh, if you know what I mean. Um, and, um, and so when I, th when I thought about, you know, uh, going into public life, uh, I certainly gravitated towards, um, uh, issues and concerns involving, uh, people who for one reason or another, uh, were uh, disenfranchised or were not privileged. And, um, you know, and, um, and I've been extremely, extraordinarily privileged to have the opportunity to do this kind of work and actually get paid for it. So, so, I mean, growing up in Long Island, did, did those kind of international stories of, of like, you know, heartbreak or misery abroad as they were filtered through the media and what was like the seventies, I would imagine, um, like resonate with you at all? I think politically when I was growing up, it was more, my focus was much more, you know, on, on national politics. Uh, I was 12 in 1968. Um, so I was old enough uh, to see what was going on. I think I campaigned in 1968. I probably campaigned for Gene McCarthy. Um, I have a teenage sister and, and there was always a real keen appreciation uh, in my family about uh, an awareness conversation about issues of, you know, racial, social, economic justice. That was very much a part of our, the conversation in the house. Uh, it was really when I got to college that I got, that I really got turned on to issues of international relations. I took a course, I took a course with a 
a professor well, of course. who changed my life. Uh, it was um, it was an international politics course. It was taught by a guy named uh, Edward Weisband, who was at the State University of New York at Binghamton, but then uh, now is at Virginia Tech. And he just, you know, was one of every, I think a lot of us had those experiences in college where all of a sudden the world opened up in such interesting and profound ways. And um, I remember when I, 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 either my sophomore or my junior year, I, I um, had the opportunity to have an internship in Washington and I had two options. One was to work for a guy named Toby Moffitt, who was a, one of, I think worked for Ralph Nader on, and he was a congressman from Connecticut, worked on domestic political issues or to work for a congressman named Steve Solars, whose focus was almost exclusively international relations. And I knew I, I kind of felt like there was a life decision and I ended up working for Steve Solars and kind of the rest was really history because from, you know, I got out of college, I went to law school, I went to graduate school and I, then I started at human rights watch Asia. And from there it was kind of one job to another, all, in the area of international human rights, humanitarianism, peacekeeping, you know, those kinds of issues. So so when when you were at Human Rights Watch Asia, which what, it later just became um, like the Asian branch of Human Rights Watch, the Asia, right? The Asia Division of Human Rights Watch, yeah. So what, what kind of issue, like what, around what year was this? What kind of issues were you working well, on? Well, I was, you know, I had gotten out of law school. I went to NYU Law School and I did the joint degree with the Woodrow Wilson School at Princeton. And unlike, <laughs> unlike, I, I didn't want to, I didn't want to go to, I didn't want to be a lawyer and I, and I didn't want to be a foreign service officer. So, you know, people, I think appropriately wondered why I, why I took those two degrees. <laughs> um, so I was working at a place called the Committee to Protect Journalists and also doing a little work for the Haitian, uh, Coalition for Haitian Refugees, working with, um, in, in, in both, in, in various ways, uh, working alongside Arya Nair who was the president or the executive director, I don't remember which, of Human Rights Watch. He essentially started Human Rights Watch. And in, so in, back in 1986, um, Arya uh, said to me, you know, how would you like to be the first professional staff member of this, this new watch committee called Asia Watch? And um, and since I, since I didn't have a job, that sounded pretty good. Right. And um, and uh, that was 19, that began in the, the the winter, early winter of, uh, uh, you know, early, early in 1986. And our focus at that point was um, uh, Korea, the transition in Korea. It was human rights in Indonesia and, you know, abuses under the Suharto regime. Uh, we were just beginning uh, uh, an effort to look at issues uh, in China. We did work on Singapore and Malaysia. And it was a great, you know, it was a great way to start a career as a 28-year-old. And it sounds like you had a lot of latitude there. Um, I guess so. So, was your job then kind of bring issues of human rights abuses in um, you know the, those Asian countries to light in in DC? And like at that time, um, it, it seems like to, uh, very early in like the human rights movement, which is far more mature now. Right. Would you say that you had like an, a receptive audience, or how would you compare the audience? for your kinds of missives or your kind of advocacy back then to 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 today? That's a great question. And it's a quite great question that I'm not going to do justice to because it's also, I think, a, a tough question. Um, let me also say that at that point, there was an America's Watch and there was a Helsinki Watch. And there hadn't yet been established uh, um, Africa Watch or Middle East Watch. And, and um, 
Um, you know, and 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 uh, and I think there was, you know, the 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 movement didn't begin in 1986. I mean, it actually didn't even begin with Jimmy Carter. I, I, I think people, members of Congress like Don Fraser uh, from Minnesota, who began an important series of hearings, uh, um, I believe during the Ford administration on human rights and foreign policy, you know, the con- Congress uh, began to legislate human rights provisions in U.S. law uh, in the 70s. Um, and then Jimmy Carter came into office. And, and um, so by 1986, the human rights movement, it certainly wasn't as mature as it is now, but it, it was it was already pretty well developed. And I thought that, you know, that that um, that in some ways uh, officials were quite receptive, in part because the, the issues of um, of, of uh, extremist violence w- really w- weren't clouding. Uh, the human rights and humanitarian discussions, but but weren't probably issues of like the Cold War. That was um, the that was like the extremist violence of the day, where where Cold War prior or human rights priorities would be um, would be would be you know put under kind of the, the necessities of the Cold War. I think I think the answer to that question is is yes, but I also think there was an appreciation. Some the answer is yes. But I think um, there was some appreciation among um, administration officials that, um, you know, that authoritarian regimes um, ultimately, uh, at least some appreciation, not complete, um, so that authoritarian regimes uh, somehow, you know, weren't, weren't always so terrific. Uh, for U.S. foreign policy issue, interests, even in the context of the Cold War. And I think that explains, you know, some of the administrations, uh, various administrations' um, uh, uh, willingness or responsiveness on uh, to members of Congress on the Philippines, on Korea. Um, it was, it, you know, it was, it was slow going. It was very difficult, especially in the context of places like Central America. But progress wasn't impossible, and progress did take place. Um, what I learned from from honestly from Arya Nair was uh, that if you think that based on your expertise as an advocate, you can and should spend most of your time whispering in the ear of policymakers who ultimately will be so overwhelmed by the wisdom of your perceptions that they will alter policy, then you're deluding yourself. And And that's not how it works. That's not how it works. That that advocacy organizations have their strength, get their strength by credibly speaking truth to power and doing so in a very, you know, in a, in a strong way, in, a, in, a, in, a, in an appropriate way, in a way that isn't, you know, that isn't, uh, that doesn't devolve into ad hominem attacks and isn't disrespectful, but is sharp, is sharp. And I think Human Rights Watch, uh, very much informed by that lesson from Arya Nair, has really modeled that kind of approach. And I think to great to really great effect. I say street, speak truth to power credibly means credibly means having an edifice of information uh, f- um, based on fact finding. And it doesn't even matter that most of the world never reads your hundred page reports. They know that you've written them <laughs> and they know that what you say is based on them. And so that's the edifice of knowledge that gives you credibility. But then you go out there and you do battle. And that even impacted my my perspectives when I was the chief uh, humanitarian officer at the Department of State, you know, humanitarians traditionally, 
Traditionally, humanitarians, the role they play is sort of more quiet because they have to get along with governments where they're trying to get access to areas so they can feed people and support people. So traditionally, uh, there's been a little bit of a tension between human rights advocates on the one hand and humanitarians on the other. And I, I felt that humanitarian advocacy was critically important and that, um, and, that, uh, and that while you need to be respectful of governments, that access is a very important issue, uh, ultimately, um, you had to speak the truth and you had to be prepared to talk publicly about critical humanitarian issues. And I still So, so how, how long were you, were you there at, at Asia Watch? I was at Asia Watch from 1986 uh, to um, the, begin, the very beginning or the very end of 1985, beginning of 1986 through March, April of 1989, at which point I went to the um, House subcommittee uh, on Asian and Pacific Affairs staff uh, working for um, uh, Steve Solars on, on um, uh, South Asia and a lot of humanitarian and refugee issues. And then did you eventually join the, the Clinton administration from there? Yeah, in 1992, um, I started, you know, kind of writing papers and briefing. We, we did, um, <laughs> uh, during the campaign, remember, it was Governor Clinton, not President Clinton. And so, you, you know, we had to daily, um, the foreign policy uh, team on the campaign. Oh, you, you had, joined this campaign team? Uh, yeah, I joined the campaign team. And I was... Uh, and I was um, in Washington, but every day he, he he would get a foreign policy brief. So one or two days a week, I would draft that brief, you know, sort of a brief on what's happened overnight. I, I can remember it like it was yesterday. And then so we'd finish the brief. I'd get on the phone with Sandy Berger or Tony Lake. Tony became yeah. the national security advisor. Sandy was and his deputy. Head of UNICEF right now. Uh, yeah. Now he's head of UNICEF. And I would read to them over the phone because we, you know, we... We um uh we didn't we couldn't there were emails we couldn't send them emails I don't think we had that capability back then that was 1992 maybe we did but I remember reading reading those and then after he okayed them then we would walk over to the DNC I think and fa- and have them faxed to Little Rock when uh when when where Bill Clinton uh, presumably would read them <laughs> so how are you crafting these for for Bill Clinton because you know now of course he's known as like a man of the world which is a entitled biography about his post presidency but uh, also you know he's known as like a, a worldly sort of character but at the time he was you know the governor of, of Arkansas not did not have like a foreign policy portfolio well to the best to, to the best of, of my recollection and you really what are we talking about here we're talking about 20 what is it 20 uh 25 years ago but to the best of my recollection, I think we 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 wrote them to a to a, a highly educated um, generalist um, who um, you know. So you would provide a, a certain amount of background information, but he was a <laughs> he was always a very very smart guy who um, who loved uh, information. I mean, you know, I've known him now uh, since about basically since nineteen ninety two ninety three. And, um, you know, he is, he's just, a uh, he, he is a voracious consumer of information. He has a deep interest in, in any and all issues. And, um, you know, I, I can remember being, I'm embarrassed to say this, and I hope he doesn't hear this on one level, on another level, I hope he does. But I can remember we were in, when I was his deputy, uh, in the, um, on the tsunami response in 2005, 2006, where he 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 led that effort, and it was a it was a really very impressive, thirteen billion dollar effort in support of tsunami recovery and response, 
and he was holding court in in a in a hotel room in Sri Lanka, and we were, he was talking and engaging with um, with Sri Lankans and Americans. I don't remember who was in the hotel room, and I can remember sort of berating myself because I was so tired that I all I wanted to do was go to sleep. And I'm thinking to myself, how can you have this urge just to go to sleep when you're in a room, you know, hearing the wisdom from you know, Bill Clinton. And, um, and he just was indefatigable uh, in ter- when it comes to engaging, you know, issues. Um, and I, I, it's funny, I had a, kind of a similar experience. I, I traveled with him through Africa in 2008 uh, as a reporter, kind of trailing him as he uh, visited some of his uh, some of his foundation projects. And yeah, I mean, he was up earlier and, and stayed out later than, than everyone else and just kind of held court and everyone was like totally exhausted, but he was just you know, sharp as ever. And I think this was like even after his heart attack, which is impressive or maybe, or maybe, maybe it was before the, 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 the heart attack, but still it was just like, just, just an impressive, an impressive display. So, um, how, so, so what was the, 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 the top rank in, in the Clinton white house that you achieved? Cause I, I know that you said you ended up working for him again in your capacity right, as a UN staffer. Right. I but, spent, yeah. uh, after, after he was elected, I moved from the foreign affairs committee in 1993 to, um, his national security council staff. Um, um, and I, um, started as a, a director, really the national security council staff is not so hierarchical. So there are people who are, you know, who run offices who traditionally are senior directors and special assistants to the president. And then there are directors. And I started as a director in in an office that had a hodgepodge of functional issues called global programs and multilateral affairs. And that was for the senior director there was Dick Clark, who who, um, you may remember wrote a book called Against, I think it's called Against All Enemies. He was a major uh, uh, figure uh, in the um, in the Clinton and the um, and the Bush administrations, um, and um, and uh, so I worked for Dick, and um, and in prior administrations he was of course, and I, so I worked for him, and then ultimately I went through a succession of kind of promotions, and ultimately became senior director and special assistant to the president for multilateral and humanitarian affairs, which included everything from United Nations issues, including peacekeeping, international humanitarian response. Uh, human rights um, and uh, and a few other issues that I forget um, and um, and uh, including the U.S. at that point it, it included the USAID portfolio as well and that was from uh, you know sort of the latter part of the second uh, Clinton administration but I was in the NSC from 1993 NSC staff from 1993 uh, to the very end of the administration and then I worked for a little while in the Bush for just a you know the better part of a month. In the Bush administration, because as you may recall, <laughs> in 2000 we had a truncated transition, and so we were approached by, um, uh, by I was approached by the Deputy National Security Advisor for for George Bush, uh, Stephen Hadley, uh, uh, you know, a lovely guy, and he he asked us and several of us if we would stay on for a while, and that was a very interesting experience as well. But 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 I guess my major point is I, I served all eight years of the Clinton administration. Uh, in the National Security Council. On, well, on, what on what the made that so interesting? That that month with the Bush after uh, eight years with Clinton. Well, it's I think it's just fascinating to um, you know to see a new administration begin to take office to try to figure out you know uh, <laughs> where the furniture is, try to figure out you know how to uh, get things done, and also 
um, begin to think about how their orientation is going to be a little different. But the uh, but for me, actually, interestingly enough, I think the major perspective and perception I had in those first several weeks was the um, um, the seriousness uh, with which they operated and the courtesy with which I was treated. Um, when I left, they were not eager to have me go. Um, I th- I thought I needed, you know, obviously I'm. This was a different administration, but um, you know, so I, it was a very, it was a very interesting and valuable experience for me. So, how did you end up at the United Nations? Well, um, uh, my first uh, stint at the United Nations uh, was a was a challenging one because after after I left the Clinton administration, and you know, the decade of the '90s was such an uh, an interesting one in terms of the post. Uh, you know, post um, uh, um, uh, war, post Cold War period, uh, U.S. Uh, you know dominance in international uh, relations, um, and uh, dealing with a whole range of complex crises from the Balkans uh, to um, West Africa to East Timor. Um, so that was a fascinating experience. And then when I left that job, um, I you know I worked at a few of the think tanks in Washington as refugees from. Uh, administrations do, um, and I, um, and then I was, uh, then I went to Geneva to work for uh, Sergio Vieira de Mello, who had just been named um, uh, UN High Commissioner for Human Rights. Did you and, Did you know him from like the East Timor days? Yeah, I knew him from you know he had when I was at the White House, he was head of OCHA of the uh, 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 the Office of for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs. And, um, yeah, so I'd known him for years. We were good friends. And, uh, when he took the job, I, I reached out to him and he came back to me and basically said that he'd like me to serve as his chief of staff. Um, so, you know, I went out there, uh, in, um, in, in, in 2003, but before I went out, he had been named and you probably know this, he had been named as temporarily as the, um, as the special representative of the secretary general for Iraq in the post, uh, you know, in the post-conflict Iraq UN arrangements that were being established in 2000 and, you know, 2003. And, um, and, um, uh, and he, um, and uh, so I was concerned that, that I was going out to work for a guy who was going to be in Iraq. So I went, I went to Geneva and I, and I sat down with Sergio and I said, you know, Sergio, I, I, as much as I love the mission of OHCHR, I'm, I'm coming out to Geneva to work for you. And, um, and I need to know that, you know, you're going to be coming back after this uh, sojourn in Baghdad. And he said to me, he said, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, he said that he said to me, Eric, I'm determined to come back. And he had some personal ties uh, in Geneva. And, and uh, so he was he was planning to go out there for three or four months. And and I got to Geneva in, in, in July and he was getting ready to end his 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 job there, I think, the end of September. So we were in contact. And then, of course, um, on August 19th, 2003, um, you know, he was assassinated um, and the U.N. lost its innocence. Uh, in a, in how did a, you how did you learn of of, of that assassination and, and and just for for context he uh, was visiting uh, he was at the UN compound when it was bombed and yeah. he along with uh, about twenty some other people were were, were killed in, in in that assassination. Yeah, it was how, um, 
Yeah. I was in the office. I was at OHCHR and um, we got word. And um, I can't remember exactly how we got word, but, and, you know, and then we were, um, we were, you know, like everyone else monitoring the situation and, um, and, um, um, uh, you know, and, and also in that meeting with Sergio when he was killed was, um, was Arthur Helton, a, a personal, a friend of mine who was a great um, uh, a refugee advocate. Uh, he had just published a book with the Council on Foreign Relations. He had run the um, what is now Human Rights First, but it was the Lawyers Committee for Human Rights, their refugee project. Uh, great humanitarian. He was killed in that in that in that attack, um, and it was just it was just a terrible terrible tragedy. It also created enormous you know uh, enormous challenges in the office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, who had just lost its newly appointed leader. And it was a, it was a very challenging time. And every time I'll be honest with you, every time I felt, geez, what a challenge this is. I thought, well, yeah, it's a challenge, but compare it to, um, uh, you know, what the people at the canal hotel, um, uh, you know, and, and people in who were in Iraq, even those who were not, uh, uh, killed or injured in this attack, but, you know, compared to what they went through. And, um, you know, it, so it was, you know, as, as as challenging as that year was, um, uh, it was. Um, you know, I can only imagine uh, what those uh, what those folks who were, who were in Iraq and in the UN system. Experienced. I mean, how how did you sort of personally deal with that that tragedy and and personally process it? I mean, you you had friends, close friends. It, it sounds like who are killed, but you know, who are, who are humanitarians, just like you, who are kind of out doing their job. Um, to be honest with you. The only way, you know, I, I, I know, I knew how, which is just to put my head down and, and, um, and pardon my language, but to work my ass off at OHCHR, um, to work as hard as I could in terms of, in a very difficult situation where there was an uncertain leadership transition, where my own status was uncertain, uh, because I had really come there as his guy, um, and, and try to make the very most of my time at OHCHR, I felt that was, you know, the best way to honor um, uh, um, uh, uh, Sergio's um, uh, memory and also to to try to sustain sort of an upbeat approach towards the work and the challenge so that people at OHCHR, to the extent that I could impact, you know, you know their, you know, perceptions of their situation, that I could do so in a positive way. What I feel most regret about, and this is just a very personal comment, it's you know, is that you know my family went through a lot that that year because uh, it it threw you know everyone uh, you know it, it, it threw everything into a little bit of uh, upset, and um, and um, you know here they, <laughs> my, my my family came out in the you know sort of the hottest summer in decades, and um, and nine days in uh, this terrible terrible tragedy took place. And it caused me to throw myself into my work in a way that was much more uh, significant and substantial than I had ever imagined. And so that was it was a, it was a challenging year, but it was a challenging year for a whole hell of a lot of people, um, not only us. Did, did, did that incident change your outlook uh, on the world in any fundamental way? Did you did your worldview at all sort of shift? Did you, you know you said the U.N. lost its innocence? Did you lose any of your innocence in that moment? I don't think so. Um, I, I, you know, I make a big distinction between innocence and naivete. <laughs> I think uh, uh, naivete is a willful uh, effort to 
to to kind of push the real world out. Um, and I hope I wasn't naive before uh, the Baghdad events, and I hope I'm not naive after. Uh, innocence is different. Uh, I think innocence is a willingness um, to see, um, uh, um, you know, promise, uh, hope, and promise in in almost any situation. Because I think, and and and, but but in a clear eyed and a realistic way. So you know, I don't, I don't, I don't, um, I, I don't know that that event fundamentally changed uh, my, you know, um, my perspectives um, in in any significant and substantial way. It, what it did do, like all these sorts of events and and all of these different experiences that we have in our lives, I think it better it, it better equipped me uh, to deal with um, all kinds of challenges that you confront uh, in, in a lifetime, and um, and and uh, and that I think is a good thing. Uh, we're just about out of time, but if you have a few more minutes, I'd love to talk to you a little bit about your work in the Obama administration. Sure. Do you, Do you have a couple more minutes? I do. Okay. Uh, sure. So, so, and and I, I really don't want to keep you long. I want to be respectful of your time. Um, so, let me know if if you need to jump off. Well, I'll be um, honest with you. You know, I've done a lot of interviews, but I've never spoken as much about my own personal. I've done a lot of interviews. I'm 59 years old. But I've never spoken as much about my own personal uh, 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 my own personal uh, uh, journey as I have in this interview. So I'm very interested well, to see how it comes out. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I, I find uh, from my interaction with the listeners, people that, that they find inspiration from from these kinds of stories and Good. from learning some of the challenges that that people who you know who have had careers that that they uh, aspire to or who they know personally. I, I imagine a lot of people listening to this probably know you or know of you. Uh, they they like learning the kind of life stories behind the people who they they know and admire. So hopefully this enriches their kind of understanding not only of, of the affairs of, of the world but also of people who shape it that's well, least look, my, my I mean, it's flattering and i'm honored that you're doing it uh well so so let's talk uh, about the obama administration so so how did you come to learn that that you uh were going to be the assistant secretary of state in charge of it's called the prm right the population refugees yeah. and uh migration yeah well I, here i can tell you the whole story um um well first of all you know i was in a fortuitous position because um, you know, I had been approached during the campaign by um, both Susan Rice and and um, Tom Malinowski and maybe Tony Lake. I'm not sure um, about joining the Obama uh, team. And but but I, you know, I, as much as I had enormous regard for um, uh, uh, Barack Obama, I had you know such uh, regard for Hillary Clinton that I it, that that it never occurred to me not. It never occurred to me not to support, and mm -hmm. so I was. But I always retained very uh, good and cordial relations with the Obama camp. And when, when, um, uh, when Secretary Clinton, she wasn't secretary at the time, um, when she announced um, her intention, when it looked like she was going to drop out of the race, I was approached by uh, Susan Rice and asked to join the Obama team. And I said, you know, give me a Let's wait for for um, uh, uh, for Hillary to um, announce that she's um, you know not going to run, and then and then I'll come back to you. And that's exactly what I did, and they embraced me. 
Um, and, um, and so I ended up doing a, the daily, uh, you, you, you kind of do what you're good at, right? So I ended up replicating roles I played in earlier campaigns and I did the daily brief for, uh, for, uh, for, for Obama and his team. And, um, and I, and I put but, together, but this time you got to email it, I would imagine. I emailed and I put together, we had a team of about 20 people who were working on it. And it was, and, and I think I did some other stuff for them, but that was my main work. And so I got to know at least through email folks like, you know, Dennis McDonough and others. And, um, and it also was very, for, it was fortuitous too, because when it came time for, um, for the sec- the incoming secretary, secretary Clinton to, um, choose her team. It was no problem from their perspective. Uh, I had a long relationship with her, and it was no problem from the Obama team's perspective that I was her choice because they had grown to know me, and I think, I hope, uh, respect me. And so, it, it, the, the only the question wasn't whether I was going to work for um, Secretary Clinton. The question was what job. And there were three jobs that were being discussed. Uh, one was um, undersecretary that dealt with kind of conflict issues. The other was assistant secretary for human rights. And the third was, um, was, um, uh, assistant secretary for refugees. When she interviewed me, she t- we talked about two jobs, refugees and human rights, but I knew that she probably wanted me in the refugee job. And that's the job I wanted because that bureau has a budget at the time had a budget of nearly $2 billion, an enormous capacity to do good in the world. More importantly, that was, it's a very well-managed bureau. But a bureau in which an assistant secretary, you know, could play a real leadership role if if he if he if he if he knew the the brief and and cared deeply about it and was prepared to be very um, engaged. And so when she uh, she asked me to do it, I was delighted, and um, it was probably the best job I ever had. Um, you know, what was that interview like with with Hillary Clinton? What, what kind of questions was she asking you? You know. At this point, I can only surmise because it's just a blur. But, but you know, she. I, I've known I've known Secretary Clinton since um, the ni- the mid nineties because when I was on the NSC staff, um, my office dealt with humanitarian issues. So, so that made us a uh, such an obvious partner with the office of the first lady in the Clinton administration. So, so we worked with um, uh, uh, the, the then first lady's office extensively. So I, I had known um, secretary Clinton for so many years. So it was, it was a, you know, it was a very cordial uh, interaction. Um, I'm sure um, uh, the questions were easily handleable, handleable questions and um, and I kind of felt like I was going to come out of that meeting <laughs> with some with some job. Um, it I would have been mine to lose, I guess, is what I would is what I'm saying. But she's a lovely. She's just she's she's such a kind, caring, and generous person. I'll give you an example of this, um, which is, you know, I haven't spoken to her, uh, you know, since probably certainly not since the end of the campaign and and probably many many months before that the last time uh probably was i think in the winter of 2015 right and occasional correspondence um so i was um i was leaving the humphrey school um after 6 years where i was served as dean to become president of refugees international so i went to a final dinner there um a public leadership awards dinner and they they spent some time at the dinner thanking me uh, for my contributions to the school and the university. And, um, and unbeknownst to me, um, uh, Secretary Clinton had recorded, I'd say about a three to five minute video 
um, which they showed, you know, sort of expressing her appreciation for all the work that I've done. It came totally out of the blue, um, you know, and it's not like I'm in touch with her day in and day out. And it was just such a reflection of her kindness and her loyalty. And um, so she's, she's not a hard person to work for, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, so looking back at, at your time in the Obama administration, is there one accomplishment you can point to that stands out or one moment that stands out that kind of makes you proud of, of the work that you did there that you can talk about? Or any yeah, stories I, mean, I think it, in some sense, let's go, it takes me right back to the refugee resettlement issue. Um, um, when I got into office, it was, um, um, uh, uh, it was, um, it was in the wake of the Great Recession. And um, and uh, the U.S. Uh, when we resettle refugees, uh, we start with the State Department, and they provide a reception and placement grant for incoming refugees, which supports them for the first many weeks after their arrival. And then they go into, um, you know, the the states and HHS and the state the state um, uh, state assistance provides you know a longer term support. Um, and, um, and over the course of, uh, and, and, and so when I got into the job, the per capita grant for any incoming refugees, I think was about $900. And that was split between the agency that was resettling them and the refugee himself or herself per capita per person. And, and in real terms, since probably, you know, over the past, over the then past 20 years or so, the real value of that grant had diminished uh, considerably. Um, and so, and it certainly hadn't been increased in real terms ever, right? Um, at least over the period we were talking about. And, um, and, and, uh, you know, I traveled, uh, uh, extensively domestically in addition to internationally, but to see how re- refugees re- were doing. And I felt very concerned that, um, that I, we, we were putting refugees in the position of, of, you know, but, but, you know, starting them in a hole and nobody expects, that 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 refugees should come in and have a gold-plated existence, but they should be given the basic necessities so that they can so that they can on their own, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, 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 work to succeed in our society. And I didn't want us to be in a situation where refugees were had to choose between buying diapers or buying food for their kids. And so I so I suggested I said, well, let's look at ways that we can increase this grant. And um, and the, the suggestions I received were, you know, 200, 300 a month. And I, I ultimately, based on my own uh, 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 um, uh, visits to these places, my review of reports that had been written on this issue, um, I wanted to double um, the, uh, the the reception and placement brand. I wa- and I and it was it was a source of satisfaction to me that um uh, that the amount that I wanted to pursue was so was so significant that it would cause the, the non governmental organizations not to say, "Oh, he should have done more," but my God, we we didn't believe that he was going to do that much, and 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 that's ex- and so we worked that through um, the Office of Management and Budget. I I, I enlisted Samantha Power as my ally. Uh, we went uh, to the Office of Management and Budget, and in um, I think it was in. January of 2010, um, you can check that. Um, we announced the largest, the doubling of the reception and placement grant, the largest single increase in the program's history. And what it resulted in 
was providing refugees with the minimum that they need. This was not, you know, putting refugees on easy street, but this was doing justice by this program. And that may be the thing I'm most proud of. It's so interesting. It's like a small bureaucratic shift and it's not like a huge amount of money in like budgetary terms by any stretch, but it's a significant amount of money for any individual who's trying to start a new life here. It was huge and it was probably 60 or 70 million dollars annually in the budget. Mm-hmm. That's off the top of my head. I mean, look, there are other other act- activities and actions that I feel very proud about. Um, but you asked me about one thing. And yeah, if there's one thing it. I wanted to mention, that was it. And it's, it's interesting that you, you, you mentioned Samantha Power, who probably had your old post at the NSC at that time. She inherited the job first. When, when, yeah. I, when I left the job, Elliot Abrams took that job. And, um, and, and then when, and then Elliot moved on to the Middle East, I can't remember who, who took it from Elliot in the Bush administration, but then Samantha took over, um, my old job at the NSC. Although by that point, um, the AID portfolio, the development portfolio had, 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 had become separated out. Um, but, but, but much of what Samantha was doing was these, this exact same portfolio that I had. And of course you wrote, wrote a biography of, of your friend and, and late boss. She wrote a, a, a biography. In fact, it's a biography that um, that I've used in my teaching because it's a biography, but it also kind of chronicles the, the 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 challenges confronted by the UN and the international community during the period of the 1990s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I actually recommend that to anyone who wants like an intro to the UN. I, I recommend that book to them Absolutely. as well. And it, it does highlight one of the tensions you mentioned earlier between like humanitarian is impulse and, and human rights impulses and in a very good way, I thought. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, Sergio was the epitome of that of that conflict. And when he got the job as high commissioner for human rights, a lot of people in the human rights community were very concerned because this guy was a diplomat and humanitarian who, you know, who often said, let's just get to a solution. And so this was a challenge that he was he was dealing with uh, when he tragically died. Well, um, I, I feel like I could I could kind of chat for hours with you, Eric, um, but I, I should let you go. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, this was a ball. I, I can't thank you enough. And I hope I get to uh, get to meet you before too long. All right. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Eric. That was a good one. I, I appreciate those kind of freewheeling conversations. Uh, one more thing before I let you go. If you are a premium subscriber, I have just released a new reward for you. And hint, hint, if you are not a premium subscriber, you should become one to access this reward. And that is what I'm calling a knowledge pack. It includes a list of top about 50 Twitter accounts and about 30 Instagram accounts that I find very useful to follow if you want to keep abreast with global affairs, news, and opinion. Also, I've created what I'm calling a four-step plan, a four-step guide to mastering and understanding an international affairs news item in two hours or less. This is essentially the process that I go through to bone up and get briefed on an international affairs situation. Say before I'm, I'm going for an interview like this one, I'll go through this process. I'll go through this these steps to help me better understand the news and me creating this guide it comes from an email I received from a listener who wants to know how I, I get up to speed on these issues. And, and this is how, and, and I promise you, it's a pretty easy, pretty no-nonsense way to get up to speed on a global affairs issue. And I'll mail you my, my guide. It's pretty simple. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you again to premium subscribers and we'll see you soon. Bye.
The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies or positions of Humanity in Action.